Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. And welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast with me, Barry Kirby. What I really love about the Human Factors community and the Human Factors projects we get into is really we can get into almost anything that you can possibly think of. Um, Because humans are almost involved in pretty much anything uh, to do with technology or any sort of activities, then we've got an excuse to stick our nose in. However, I've got to admit, I did meet um, a gentleman a number of years ago, we think it's probably about five now, um, at the Ergonomics and Human Factors Conference, and we sat having lunch, and he was busy telling me that um, he's going to get involved, um, Human Factors involved into the um, into the sport of the activity of diving, and that is the diving in, th- in the sea, not the diving off the board that you see at the Olympics. And I've got to admit that um, at the time, I was like, that's great, that sounds like something that's a good byline as a hobby or something like that, but... Is that is that just too niche to um, to be able to push as a as a mainstream human factors activity? Well, I'm really pleased to say that um, I was absolutely wrong, and um, I'm really pleased to welcome Gareth Locke, who's going to talk to us today about the the work that he's doing in diving, but also to sort of promote the conference he's running at the end of the month. So, Gareth, welcome. Um, thank you very much for the invite. And uh, yes, you talk about a niche of a niche of a niche. That's what I do. It's uh, and, and it's applicable. There's, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're going to cover it, but yes, human factors touches everything that goes on in, in the sport of diving. Um, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come on to the details. <laughs> no, absolutely. So, <laughs> it's so big. Before we get into the diving aspect, let's talk about what you're doing at the moment. So you're now um, you're now running your running your own consultancy. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about it, about what you do on a day to day basis? Yeah, so um, I suppose January 16 is, is when I started. It was called the Human Factors Academy at that time and then became uh, the Human Diver after that. And the idea really was to bring non-technical skills, psychological safety and just culture training into the diving industry. Um, my, my background is was 25 years in the Royal Air Force and I left in, in February 15, um, having done a whole plethora of jobs that were systems based i was aircrew as a systems engineer requirements manager did a master's in aerospace systems and near the end of my diving sorry my near the end of my uh, air force career i got involved in diving and i realized there was just this huge gap in terms of incident reporting just culture and how do you develop these sort of what was i knew it as crew resource management and I started in the oil and gas sector and then the bottom fell out of that market. And it's like, right, I want to do something in, in the diving industry. And um, it's it's been a long journey. But over that five and a half years that I've been doing this, I've trained probably about 400 people face-to-face, um, probably about 2,000 people versus, in, in online training. Uh, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, which has sold about 4,000 copies. I put a documentary together called If Only, which was... Um, inspired by um, Martin Bromley's just a routine operation um, mm. and, and as a way of showing the complexity of what's going on. And I've now trained up nine instructors to deliver non-technical skills training to divers. Um, and as you sort of touched on, I'm putting a conference together at the end of this month to basically bring it all together. Well, I mean, that's just so inspirational. The way that you've uh, basically f- almost forced yourself into this area that is so important um, 
but I know from I've had um, family members who were into diving and things, and I did look at some of the things and think, wow, that that this ju- this just needs grip. Um, this is just something that scares the living daylights out of me because just the lack of well anything uh, human factors involved it were um, it just seemed a bit crazy. Um, but we'll get into the actual um, human factors of diving in in a moment. Um, what was the original inspiration in terms of getting involved in human factors then? Because you, you obviously you've had that forces background, you've co- you've come yeah. through that, but there must have been something that said to you, actually, I want to continue down this vein rather than um, do anything, you know, follow the other engineering elements that you've that you alluded to. Yeah, it, it, I think the issue was probably about dive nine. I was on my master's degree out in the states and we weren't diving for the weekend. And on the, 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 the first day, I had a guide with me and we, we stayed within all the, all the limits. And the second day, I managed to blag my way onto a, a dive that I really shouldn't have been on. <laughs> okay. Some of the equipment went wrong. And I was, you know, lucky. I was in control. I wasn't stressed. So I managed to recover the situation. We were in a 30-meter dive where I shouldn't have been. Um, and I got back to, to the UK and went, you know what? I, I really want to get involved in, in diving. I want to do some more. And it was at that stage that I was starting to do other military work uh, that involved human factors. And I was doing more and more digging about human factors analysis and classification system. And I wrote a bit of a white paper for for the diving industry, which unfortunately managed to burn quite a few bridges in the process because (laughs) what I did was I I took the existing incident reporting systems that, that exist in diving and compared them to something like HVACs. And I and I wrote this and, and it wasn't pretty. Um, and, and because people have been doing this for many years, obviously very pe- people get defensive and protectionist over what they're doing. Now, some of the organizations that are involved recognize the value of what I was trying to do. Um, so I said, right, what I'm gonna do, I'll, I'll go to Cranfield because Cranfield had just published a report looking at a, a specific piece of diving equipment called a rebreather, okay. looking at um, normal and contingent operations with rebreathers. So I went there to start a PhD to, to validate and show that what I was doing was, was genuine. The difficulty was that there's no data and, and the industry didn't particularly want me to do this because the way it's set up is risk is transferred to the lowest levels possible. So I, I stayed in that, PhD for about five years, six years, and then knocked it on the head because right. I wasn't getting anywhere. Um, I was spending a lot of money. Um, I wasn't getting the support that I thought I would get as part of a, you know, as a, as a PhD uh, grad uh, intern. Um, and I was getting very demoralized with how academia works. At the same sort of time, I started to deliver some training and I found a, a computer-based simulation called Jemison, which was dev- designed by aviation psychologists to create an uncertain, stressful environment and to teach non-technical skills. And I used that as the sort of the jumping off board to say, right, because people are never going to sit in a classroom. There's no, there's no motivation. There's no requirement for doing that. But if I can make it fun, then, you know, people can then start taking this knowledge they've learned in the classroom and applying it to diving. Um, So that was probably the big step off was the fact that I've got a tool, I can use it. And I had some people who trusted me for the first couple of pilot classes and pretty much everybody went, wow. This is great. Learn loads. Have no idea how you're going to market this. <laughs> it's such a different thing to how the diving industry works. 
which is very much about technical skill acquisition, and it's marketed as a fun sport that's accessible to everybody. And the risk is often downplayed and you know, speaking to uh, colleagues, just talking about the margins that we have. We have in the diving industry, those margins between what you do and where the failure points are, are not really discussed. And there isn't a culture that allows learning to happen. So there isn't a just culture. It's mm. changed, I would say, in the last 10 years because of the efforts of people like myself and, and others who basically say, look, what's the local rationality? How did it make sense for somebody to do what they did? Oh, they were just stupid. They, you know, they, it was obvious it was going to end up just like that. Yeah. No, it's not. And I then started to get into conference presentations. I mean, the first conference I went to, I had five people in front of me and two of those were my friends. Um, <laughs> and, and it was just like, oh, man, this is quite hard. But then people start to realize, oh, actually, there is some value in this. And, and I purposely, when I go in to teach or present about human factors in diving, I don't start with the diving problems and issues they face. I talk about driving or forgetting your keys or picking the wrong yogurt out of the fridge or, you know, all of the things that talk about human performance variability um, and then get them to recognize that, yes, that's there. And then you segue into a diving example yeah. and they go, oh, all right, so that's why I keep making these mistakes or, you know, why why the selection's wrong or why I'm not monitoring my time or my gas and things like that. Um, so it, it was a, a long journey, I would say, and it's it's been quite hard to be motivating at times. Um, but what keeps me motivated is where people go, ah, and the light bulb moments that come on and people come to me and say, I can't stop seeing this now. You've exposed me to looking through a, you know, a, a lens of human factors and systems thinking, and I now look at things very differently. I hate you for it. It's like, <laughs> Brilliant. Right. Well, on the um, just before we dive into the uh, see what I did there, dive into um, dive into the topic. Um, obviously, we've had this little thing called COVID nineteen for um, for about eighteen months now. How have you found it? How have you coped with having to work? Have you had no work? Have you been super, super busy or? Um, it, it seriously changed. So I spent a lot of my time traveling um, around the globe, delivering this human factors training to divers. And in fact, when COVID kicked off in March last year, I was going to be out working with Noah in Seattle. And in fact, I was in Minneapolis teaching um, a paramedic team, um, a, a, an aeromed paramedic team, uh, about non-technical skills. And it was just like, uh, right, I've got to go. go you know, so I cut my course short a day because I thought the UK was going to go into lockdown. Yeah. Little did I know that that wasn't going to be the case anyway. So I could have stayed out there. But um, so I, I then came back. Um, and I'd already delivered some, some training the previous year, 10-week webinar series that looked at different aspects of non-technical skills and just culture and psychological safety. So I sort of dusted that off, um, and I got it up and running within about, a, about two or three weeks. Um, so I filled that one, proved the concept, and then that allowed me to run more. So I've run, I think, six six sets of those now uh, the last couple i've run one in the morning and one in the afternoon so I, oh. I run these literally globally so i've had people from singapore and australia come in so i'll run a, a morning class at yeah. sort of nine o'clock nine nine till uh, sort of eleven o'clock um that covers 
out far eastern australia and then i'll run an evening class that covers europe and, and the states That's um so they, they've been really good there's a lot of interaction um and i i've been really busy um in terms of just generally raising the awareness so running um i'm going to say free webinars people say can you can you give us a presentation it's like yeah fine no problem yeah, yeah. at all i can i can talk on this for for, for ages more than you'll <laughs> give me put it that way <laughs> so the, there is a there is a it's been a big shift and what i did find difficult was being in the house and trying to separate personal life and work life yeah um and so we had a, a corner of um corner of the, the study that i basically took over as my space and one of the first things I did was I bought this sit-stand desk that I'm at at the moment. Okay. And one of the reasons for that is because people said when you talk and you present and you stand up, you are far more dynamic and engaging than when you sit down. And it's like, okay, fine. Go for it. And present. So all of the deliveries that I do, I'll do when I'm standing because it's it's much more easy to engage and much more fluid than sit there and talk like this. And, and you, there's a human factor thing straight away of, yeah. you know, the, the, the environment we're in changes how we behave. Um, so then I, uh, I built a, or a, my neighbor built the back end of my garage to be the office. So I now basically set it up to be this corner of where, where we're talking at the moment is, yeah. is my desk space. And then on to my right, I've basically set up a white screen. So, uh, and I've got LED panel light. So I can basically shoot my online materials against a white screen uh, and then just do editing here and here. So it's, it's all uh, the bottom of the garden in the back of the garage. That's really, really fascinating because the I think many of us have done that. Again, I'm, I'm sort of talking from the bottom of the garden as well in, in a um, defined space. Though I love the idea of a, of having a stand desk, and maybe I should be doing my uh, my podcasting standing up to get to give me a bit more presence. And it, as long as I get, as long as I get to my buttons, then then I'm all right. Um, how have you found from a, a personal perspective? Because obviously, I don't know about you, but I found in the first sort of certainly the first six seven weeks of it. Um, almost quite difficult in a way because you're that uh, not having the commute home not having the um almost that that um pressure valve being able to be released in a way that um that my family was getting the full brunt of it whenever i had a bad meeting because that's you know storm and uh, storm and get, get a brew and like, how are you don't ask you know that type <laughs> of thing um I, 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 have you had any issues like that or have you found it easy um, or it, it wasn't too bad so my my wife's a primary school teacher so um she would go to school and our son would go to school as well. So it wasn't too bad. And um, what I did do was I, I set up a, a bike in the garage and, and, and used um, uh, an app called Sufferfest. So I ended up doing, I can't remember, 8,000 kilometers wow. um, over the year on, on the bike. Um, and because I'm quite lucky, I live out in the countryside in Malmesbury in Wiltshire. So we're right on the edge of the town. So even if we had something like, you know, the bits where you could go x distance away from home and i can't what the re requirements were we could go out in green space and oh, get fantastic. fresh air and yeah. it wasn't too bad you know seeing people you know criticizing those in the center of big cities of you know breaking the rules because you know these limitations it's like being cooped up in in a gray box is is not good for anybody and you can see why people are just saying right let's go for it more yeah. human factors so Oh, fair play. It's um, I, I was looking after a team um, whose couple of the members were stuck in sort of first and second floor flats, and that's where you know because we've got a 
I live in South Wales and we've got a decent sized garden and place to, places to walk. And it's not until you talk to them sort of people that you th- that you think, gosh, yes, just imagine being cooped up in a flat. And they took their, every, I remember because they were saying, we've got 45 minutes and we're going to use them. Do not have a meeting yeah. in my 45 minutes. Um, so no, it's fascinating. Right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to di- uh, dive into, I'm, I will stop using that joke at some point, um, but we'll dive into diving. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. So you've touched on some of this already around... um how human factors wasn't being applied in diving at all. So how do you do you apply it? What are you applying? How are you actually taking human factors principles and putting them into the, the sport of diving? So the bits that, and I'm very careful to talk about the fact that human factors is way bigger than, than I deal with. Um, I, I predominantly talk about non-technical skills in terms of team development um, and understanding, you know, communication, situational awareness, decision making, mm-hmm. um, the teamwork, leadership, followership piece, and and the error-producing conditions or performance-shaping factors. What is it that's more like, you know, m- make people more likely to to make a, an error or a bad decision, mm-hmm. and and try to counter those. But I do look at things like checklist design, um, which you know people go right checklist. There's the panacea to stop accidents from happening. It's like. No, actually, you could be in a situation where you're making things worse because you've created a checklist that's not really based on human factors principles. Yeah. It's about liability limitation. And if you end up saying to somebody, right, you've got three or four sides of A4 to complete as your checklist, it ain't going to happen. Yeah. And then when something goes wrong, that there's there's a double bind situation. Well, they went wrong and they didn't follow the checklist, therefore it's their fault. Um, or if they did fill the checklist in, well, they must they can't have executed the items in the checklist, therefore it's still their fault. Um, so it, it it's a it's a really difficult thing. So one of the one of the biggest areas that I talk about in human factors is how errors occur um, and and don't stop at human error. So there's there's a very basic level of education needed to talk about uh, error-likely conditions, the sorts of different performance modes people have, how attention works, how communication works. So the majority of my human factor stuff is um, based around non-technical skills. Now, herein lies one of the challenges in that because of communication. Now, in diving, we have recreational diving and we have technical diving and and the general boundary is that in recreational diving you can surface straight you can ascend straight to the surface without any wreck or cave or a decompression obligation so you've got to stay down technical diving is where you start doing things where you can't ascend straight to the surface and there's a lot more risks involved you've got to solve problems at depth so the first class i ran was called non-technical skills for diving and people went what's that about then so we're all technical divers and we're going to do non-technical skills does that mean you're going to give us a whole bunch of recreational stuff that we're looking at right. like, yeah. oh man okay so I-, I know it was wrong at the time but there is a point where you've got to you can't fall in your sword straight away so it was like human factors in diving or human factor skills in diving and then i'm gradually getting people around to the language now that says 
actually human factors is a big bubble and, and non-technical skills. And most of what I do um, is about the, the non-technical skills aspects rather than the human factor stuff. But the in terms of design, hardware, testing, things like that, I, I will give advice to people and say, here's the books. Yeah. But I'm not the specialist in terms of how to do a, a hierarchical task analysis or a cognitive task analysis. I know about them. Yeah. I could probably find some stuff out about them. <laughs> but it, that, that's one of the problems with human factors. It's such a huge topic. That, yeah, uh, but, but it's really interesting to see how you're taking technology skills and, and applying them to, to, to this area. Um, I mean, you say about the difference between... Um, recreational and technical diving. Um, presumably there's a broad range of users as well because you do have recreational users no matter how they're doing it, but I, I, the military have divers, uh, police have divers and these type of things. So presumably there's a bit of a difference as well between whether you're doing it for fun or you're doing it for your job as well. Oh, totally, totally. So even in the, the sports area, you can have volunteer divers. So the British Tobacco Club, Tobacco Association, Scottish Tobacco Club are club-based environments where there is no uh, compensations no money changes hands then you have professional divers albeit in the sports industry okay. so even within the recreational space you've got different types of diving and then you go to the military and i've been involved in two uh, fatality inquiries as a, a human factor specialist looking at how do you increase or improve system safety um one in the uk and one one overseas um and when you start looking at work as imagined and work as done, you can have those conversations and say, right, you know, what does work really look like? And, and as a consultant coming in, they'll tell you what really goes on. Yeah. Whereas inside the chain of command, they won't talk about, you know, the stuff that has to get done because here's all the regulations. And you go, well, how easy is it to follow those? Oh, just a nightmare. They, they end up <laughs> eroding our time and listening to Drew Ray and David Proven's present um, Safety Work podcast this morning talking about safety clutter, exactly that. Um, so in, in the military environment, it's different. I, I've done a little bit of work with the police um, down in, in Bristol, uh, gave a sort of presentation to them. It's like, oh yeah, it's all really good. Right, this is what we're going to do. You know, and, and it's, it's really difficult to try and change um, the mindset or influence the mindset because you can't change it. You can influence the mindset and look at things differently. Um, and, and that really is down to the, the open-mindedness of the leadership within the organisations. Um, and that's, that's difficult. So are you finding at the moment that you're almost having to knock on the door and say, look, I do this, I can help you? Or are you, have you maybe sort of got towards a bit of a tipping point where people are starting to come to you um, for help and support? So the, the, the first military task was I got contacted and said, we'd like you, you know, are you interested in being involved in this study? It's like, yeah, of course I am. <laughs> um, I, I'd love to, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about sharing my knowledge and yes, I can, I can help. The second military cast task came on the top of the, on the back of the first one right. because that was disseminated. Um, and they sort of picked it up and went, oh, well, we can just score out that and put our organization in because the, the issues are very similar. Um, I'm still having to go out there and I'm trying to get into, you know, the commercial diving sector. I've done yeah. some work in the, the top side oil and gas sector um, with the well operations crew resource management programs, trying to field those. But in the diving sector, it comes under INCA um, or the um, uh, Canadian programs. There isn't any high level 
impetus to make it happen. Um, so I've been trying to approach individuals who I know who are influential to say, here, read this, yeah, because yeah. I think it needs to be considered. And, and then the normal pushback is, yeah, we, we've got human factor specialists. We, we cover all that. And yet when I go and speak to commercial divers, and I've got two that are on the um, the conference, they're going, no, they don't. It's, it's the same as any other industry, I suppose. At the high level, they go, yeah, yeah, we're, we're covering this. And then when you get down to the sort of the tactical and operational levels, they go, we have heard nothing about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and we could really do with it. Um, so. so you're trying to really inspire a, um, a change of culture as well as, um, um, you know, the, the nitty gritty of, of, of that tactical level as well. So, yeah, um, yeah don't envy you on that. But obviously part of this journey then is, um, is this conference. So not only yeah. are you, have you dived into a niche area, you're going to tell everybody, tell everybody else about it as well. So first of all, um, what is the conference and when is it? Yeah, so it's um, it's on the 24th and 25th of September. It's being run virtually. Uh, it's from 10 o'clock until 10 o'clock on the Friday, 6 o'clock on the Friday, and then 10 o'clock until 6 o'clock on the Saturday. Yeah. And I purposely split it Friday and Saturday because I know people working. They also want to go diving, and there's all sorts of bits that run. It's running virtually because I'm pretty confident I wouldn't be able to get people to travel into the UK, even if COVID was not on and if we weren't in this situation, to be able to do that. Um, and it also allows me to get a global audience. And I've I've set the times up so that the speakers who are coming in from Australia and New Zealand are in the morning. And as, as the sun travels around the world and the clock moves, uh, <laughs> then actually we're going to get speakers from Europe and the States giving their uh, their stuff as well. Um, and it's, it's to cover all sorts of diving, predominantly sports recreational diving but i've got commercial divers in the states they have a thing called public safety diving so their police and fire teams get involved in in rescues and recoveries um, so i've got a presentation from there um, i've got uh, a commander from the norwegian navy who's talking about how they brought crew resource management into their dive school okay. um, so and i've got uh, diane chadwick jones um, who used to be at bp talking about changing a you know moving from a blaming to a learning culture in a high-risk organization and and she took over as a sort of head of, of safety culture within bp following Deepwater horizon and she's been a fantastic supporter of, of the work i'm doing um, we've also got people from healthcare talking about how do they bring human factors into healthcare and what can the diving industry learn about that so it's it's a very broad and deep um, session over 28 presentations over the two days. I mean, that's that's a fantastic amount of content. Um, how what was it like trying to go out and, and get people to come and talk in the, talk to this? Did, did they think you were slightly nuts, or was it were they really keen? Or um, I, it's really good. I have, uh, I, I suppose, a tribe that's out there. Yeah. Nearly all of the people that have, are speaking have done courses with me. Um, if they haven't they know about me over the last sort of 10 years, the work that I've been doing and very supportive of it. So actually I wrote to, I think about 36 people for 29 speaker, 28 speaking slots, sorry, 30 speaking slots. And I filled them all bar one, which somebody I was trying to get in from um, the state, the U S parachute association yeah. of how they change their culture on drop zones. 
Um, and, and he was unable to do it. So I'm going to take that slot and just talk about the messy world of diving. Diving is imagined and diving is done. Yeah. Um, and, and pick up some some research that I've done recently. Uh, so it, it, it was the same as putting the book together. I wrote to 40 people, 45 people, and got 35 stories back um, because people recognize the value of what I'm doing and I wasn't going to tear them apart. I wasn't going to be the, the sort of Monday morning quarterback people who sit there at their story and go, oh, you made that mistake, you made that mistake. Yeah, yeah. I, I took the story apart in terms of human factors and decision-making and cognitive processes and things and said, this is how it made sense for those individuals to do what they did. Oh right, so yeah, that's brilliant. And then, so you've taken the the I guess the the COVID is an advantage then to um, to have these online conferences because they are um, when we first talked about having the ergonomics conferences as virtual. Um, I remember going, sitting in the last physical meeting. I, in fact, it was the last physical meeting I sat in um, when we when we were talking as as part of the council to sort of say, oh, it might go virtual, and I was like, this is going to be a disaster. This is you know nobody's going to do it. It's going to be really rubbish. Um, but again, brilliant to be proved wrong and, and have that sort yeah. of thing. So how long has it taken you to pull this conference together, given, you know, you, you know, massive number of speakers and pulling people on a weekend as well into a virtual environment? Um, uh, well, that- I announced it on the 28th of June, and I probably made a decision two weeks before that. Um, so I'd... Um... <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm using a novel platform as well called Let's Go Live. Okay. So one of the things that I wanted to do, it's not a, it's not a traditional conference platform. It's a social, it's a virtual social platform. And the idea is there's, there's no chat. Everybody is there with video and mic, which can be on and off. Um, but you're at tables in a hall. Okay. And the idea is you can have six to eight people at a table, and so you're arranged there, and then you can see the presenter's screen. So you can talk to each other whilst the main presentation is going on. Um, so you can have the interactions. There is a, you know, there's a table that says, I have a question. So people go up to that, and then you get invited up onto the stage. Um, oh, cool. So, and you can get up and walk from your table onto somebody else's, or there might be some other couches around the room, or you can get up out of this hall and walk into the other hall and sit yeah. down and listen to another uh, another session. Um, so, and the other advantage is that it's all gonna be recorded. Yeah. All of the previous conferences, they've been very reticent, physical face-to-face conferences, um, have been reticent to record them because they said, well, people won't come then. If they can just get the stuff online, they won't come. It's like, well, there are lots of people that will offset that, who will you know, get the, the recordings that they wouldn't do because they can't travel. So there are a number of options. There's a live, a live plus recording and a recording only option. Because I know that it's eight hours a day over two days um, and it's you know split over the time zones around, around the world. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's gonna have to be recorded. So yeah. I, you make a decision you go right i'm going to make it happen and um yeah it's going to be fun it will happen it may not break even but hey that's that's the way things go it's (laughs) it's about getting the 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 concept out there and and my whole passion is get the concept of human factors into diving out there globally it it will be a, a grassroots and has been a grassroots approach because organizationally there isn't much benefit for applying human factors because of the way that the industry is set up. Yeah. Um, the margins are incredibly small. 
risk is managed by the number of seriously injured or dead people. Unfortunately, there aren't very many of those. Therefore, what must be happening is safe. Yeah. And you don't understand the margins that divers and dive instructors and dive centers are managing. That's those safety margins because we don't have a just culture. We don't have a reporting culture. We don't have a learning culture. So it is a huge ecosystem, a whole system of, of, of looking at diving. So, um, yeah, so the, the whole we don't know really how risky it is because, you know, um, because we, we're not asking the right questions. We're not doing the right things at the moment. So. <laughs> That's that's really cool. So if people want to attend, um, yeah. from what, I presume there's still some tickets left. Oh yeah, yeah, um, there's still tickets left. Um, the the URL, if you if you Google Human Factors in Diving Conference, you'll get it. Yeah. But the direct URL is hf-in-diving-conference.com. Brilliant. I'll make sure that is in um, in this program description and also on the links that we send out. So that's really really cool. Um, the, it'll also be really um, interesting to have a chat with you um, after the conference as well to see how it's how it's gone and because um, I think as well as the content of what you're doing, I think more people are becoming aware that they can, um, you know, set up their own pedestal for their own topic yeah. and actually understanding how you know how easy it is to do certain things. Um, I mean, I, that's one of the reasons I started the podcast um, was because I, I felt I wanted to um, to raise the profile of you know the whole thing. And what you've done is is really encapsulate that and and go big guns on it. So yeah, I'm hugely jealous. Um, well, it, it came on the back of a vet uh, human factors in vet medicine uh, conference that happened at the end of January, start of February. Right. So that's okay. where my sort of I've been thinking about it, and then there was this bit of yeah, that's interesting. Maybe I should do something. And then I sat in my bum for ages and, and didn't do it. So it wasn't until, you know, yes, there had been a seed sowed in, in, in sort of January, February, yeah. but it wasn't until June that I went, right, make it happen. And, uh, <laughs> <I mean. laughs> see, so I, I normally have them sort of ideas when I'm sort of sat around and then my wife berates me for, for say, sort of said, you don't think you're busy enough already, but I'm, yeah. From what you said, you're quite a busy guy, and you've you've been able to pull this together. So that is absolutely fantastic work. Um, like I said, we'll uh, promote the event as much as we can. Best of luck with it. I hope it Thank really you. goes well, and I look forward to seeing how how people receive it. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, yeah, I can give you a quick update afterwards and we go from there. So thank you very much for the time, Barry, and uh, the voice. And if anybody is interested in human factors, you can do it. It, 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 it takes just that mindset and the drive to say, what can I do differently? Um, so go for it. Couldn't put it better myself. See you soon. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense. <laughs>